For this special holiday edition of Flock of Seagulls, sit down with a nice mug of hot chocolate, some pecan fucking pie, and enjoy reindeer games with us. That was really good. Um, so, people, welcome back to Flocks of Galls. We accidentally took a month off just due to scheduling conflicts. Uh, we promise that'll never happen again until it does. And um, but as always, I'm Riley, and with me is Michael. Hello, Michael. You've been on every single episode, I believe. I think I missed one. Oh, true, true, true. Yeah, and then Dan. Yes, I've missed a few. I wasn't here from the start, and I think the last time I was just so sleepy and tired. Oh, that's true. The Was that the film you didn't see? No, that was three <laughs> films ago. That was... I can't the more remember. I recall about your contributions to these podcasts, the more I find it lacking. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I am the millstone of this group. <laughs> yes. Uh, how's the horror podcast going? I similarly took a month-long break because the personal lives of myself and my co-hosts were just hectic as all heck. Just put out a new episode. The audio is terrible, uh, but I do recommend you check it out if you can stomach that audio because we have a very interesting discussion about a smaller Canadian horror film called The Interior. And that podcast is Outside of a Dream, which you can find on any podcatcher or cast box or any type of program you use to download podcasts. That all sounds great, but have you on your podcast covered anything as great or thrilling or just so f- chock full with the human condition as reindeer games? I mean, not too long ago, we discussed It Comes at Night, which is sheer raw human horror about fallibility, but I don't think it has any of reindeer games' charm. Have you seen the porn parody, We All Come at Night? <laughs> Only on X Hamster. <laughs> Have you seen? Oh, sometimes uh, when I'm feeling very dark and very blue, I will watch uh, high school kids YouTube uploads. Oh, oh, but, wait, what type of videos? Because you said high school kids and you were talking about porn five seconds ago. I'm very alarmed. These would be parodies. Okay. High school kids, uh, not even parodies, but just reenactments of uh, Kingdom Hearts scenes. And normally it's done like on a snowbank or like in a busy intersection or just any place where you shouldn't have um, a giant cardboard key swinging around and trying to hit another person. And typically you're both in snow pants. It's, it's really interesting to watch because there's so much time put into the shooting, the memorizations of lines, the editing together of you doing an homage to... Something that's already been done better. By the source material. By the source material that you're trying to emulate. And that brings us to Reindeer Games. (laughs) Which I think sort of ties in fairly well to this theme of everyone in this movie has done something better beforehand. (laughs) Why are they here? (laughs) Also Gary Sinise. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty unique amalgamation of talent all kind of coalescing on something that uh, I'm sure they would pay 
hundreds of thousands of dollars to uh, erase from filmography. Oh. Uh, we've got director John Frankenheimer, uh, who did Manchurian Candidate, Seconds, uh, Ronin, which, you know, uh, is like action nerds, the holy grail. Charlie Theron. You, you know what else John Frankenheimer did, right? He did Island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> the Val Kilmer, Marlon Brando, David Thewlis one. I mean, he's dead. I was trying to go easy on <laughs> He died soon after. Can't slander the dead. <laughs> uh, but it, 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 it's funny, like, to, like, see, again, three people. So Ben Affleck, Charlie Theron, John Frankenheimer, who... It's an unlikely pairing to start off with based on, uh, in the case of John Frankenheimer's past career, in the case of uh, Charles Stern and Ben Affleck, their current careers. Like, it's weird to see them not only in a movie, period, but just in this type of movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's it's a weird one. Charlize Theron has said of this movie that it is the it is the worst movie she's done in her career. But she did it because she loved uh, John Frankenheimer so much. Like you just, she had to do it. And this is the him. woman who did a million ways to die in the West. <laughs> you know, I I will say, like, gosh, she has terrible choices, man. As plays out in the movie, like she she's not terrible in it, especially in comparison to Ben Affleck. Like he's got some really grown worthy acting moments. But like you know, we'll, we'll get into it later on. But like. You know, she, she shows some acting ability. Like, her character has definite range yes, for yes. reasons we will have to get into <laughs> for, like, story reasons we can't reveal outright. Right. Uh, One of the other things I will say is that this movie, for everything that it does, it's a very pre-9-11 movie. There's a lot of hope and a lot of goodness in every single scene. There's a lot of everything that's committed to celluloid is sort of like this upbeat in some way sort of thing. And just not movies aren't filmed this way anymore. And it's really interesting to see something so close to that brush up of where, you know, uh, society changed forever. It's just such a time capsule of everything that happened just before. And no one does movies like this anymore. Like it's a non self-aware Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> That's a good comparison, actually. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, Reindeer Games came out in 2000, uh, budget 42 million, gross uh, 32 million. So uh, cl- clearly a failure. Opening scene, borderline laugh out loud funny. Um, montage of various Santa Clauses, Santa Claus I, I'm not sure. Uh, the Klaus. Dead in 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 uh, various uh, explicitly uh, nasty ways. The, the one of them has their head through uh, the windshield of a car, and you can actually see that they've got like I don't know uh, pipes or something in his feet to have smoke coming out to yeah. show that yeah he's. Oh, I didn't see that. Oh yeah, that's very nice. And so after we see this montage of all these dead Santa Clauses, we hear Ben Affleck say. I was never much for the holidays. <laughs> ben Affleck says this. It, this is from a sound design point of view. So I'm the guy who edits the podcast. I get really into sound design. Ben Affleck either recorded this under a bridge or someone added a lot of reverb to his voice to make it sound like it was coming out of his head because he sounds very distant in the, distant in the mix. And you just, I, I, I had to turn up, the, this was also a constant 
for me watching this movie. I had to turn up the volume and then turn it down because the dynamics on it are a level that also you don't see in film anymore. Like it was like everybody whispers until a shotgun is fired. Like it's it's very, very back and forth like that. But like Ben Affleck and I checked at the end because I watched the end today again. There is like a reverb effect applied over his voice to make him sound more distant as if it's supposed to be in his head, which is a common effect. Uh, Like if you ever watch uh, Scrubs when JD is thinking to himself or if you've ever seen those YouTube videos of Scrubs, except they edit it. So JD is just the, the, the voiceover is not there anymore. So it's just him thinking amazing, amazing shit. But with this, it's it's that idea of like sort of Ben Affleck supposed to be thinking to himself, but there's never any moment where he's established as thinking to himself, but it just annoyed me to no end. Got really metatextual there for a second. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I guess the basic layout of this movie is Rudy is a former car thief who has been serving five years in prison for car theft. Uh, But as we learned fairly early on, he is three days from release along with his buddy, uh, Nick, who's played by James Frain. We'll get back to... G- we'll, we can cut this out. I'll talk about James Frain. <laughs> uh, and yeah, they're just two kind of sad sack buddies serving out their prison sentence quietly. Nick has been corresponding with this woman named Ashley through some kind of, you know, uh, convict pen pal magazine. I guess those must exist or did exist in that pre-9-11 world. Uh, This was airing at the same time as Oz, so I find it believable. Okay. Rudy's a bit worried because uh, he believes he was framed for uh, putting this very large, uh, very vicious prisoner away in solitary for a while, and the guy has just gone out of solitary. But Rudy didn't actually do it. Someone else ratted on him. Someone ratted on him. Yes, he maintains that. Anyways, and this comes to a head uh, during, listen, five minutes in, I was... This movie seemed fairly normal to me. Uh, but then we get to the lunch scene in the cafeteria at the prison where the jello that's being served is suddenly filled with dead cockroaches. And this prisoner, played by uh, kind of borderline unrecognizable Isaac Hayes, points this out in like a kind of dementia fugue <laughs> state in the scene that kind of goes from very surreal and drawn out to very violent in a few seconds. And yeah, a big riot breaks out. There's there's guards in riot gear. And that big old prisoner makes a move for Rudy of a shiv, but sticks Nick instead and guts him. And poor Nick is carted away to death. Uh, And one of the things I love about this scene, this prison riot scene, is this is before we as viewers in 2017 are spoiled with different uh, depictions of prison and prison life and prison riots, especially because in this scene, they had not in any way told extras how to behave. Because if you look at any of the wide shots in it, all the extras are like feigning going like feigning being attacked by someone uh, or like feigning someone coming at them with blows, but then there's no one on the on the sort of sending end of those blows. There's no one actually attacking a lot of people, so it looks like a lot of people all trying to do sort of like a a, a very timid shuffle in like a like a, a lost Michael Jackson or Prince music video. Well, as I realized, those wide shots look pretty off. 
because John Frankenheimer is much more used to doing unnecessarily close in shots on people, <laughs> especially in the thick of action where it suddenly got very confusing because we're seeing a close up of someone in profile as they're running to attack someone with the camera at a Dutch <laughs> angle. So I was having to process a lot of conflicting information very fast. And I think maybe that was Frankenheimer's strength. Uh, wide shots certainly weren't. Uh <laughs> Certainly weren't. And it's also in the earlier scenes in the prison, uh, which were all very obviously done. Sort of there was prison. There were there's a scene in a prison with the extras. And then there were the close ups on a soundstage. And man, that made it feel like like a 1950s movie where like everyone is sort of standing out so much from the background because the background was painted by somebody. The background is a work of art that someone else has done. Uh, and Ben Affleck, who's much too pretty for prison, uh, it makes you really, really believe that the original casting of this part went to uh, Vin Diesel, which apparently he was he was originally supposed to play the part uh, Ben Affleck played. Uh, not Ben Affleck's part. He was supposed to be one of the crew members. Oh, no way. Yeah, but which I could totally see him fitting in. in. But yeah, he disagreed with the writing of the character and he went on to do <laughs> like, no, I mean. Listen, Vin Diesel, he plays a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. He is all about character creation and development. Yep. So that's so he wow. you know, said, screw this to John Frankenheimer. And he went off and did the first Fast and Furious movie. So jokes on John Frankenheimer. <laughs> well, another funny detail about the uh, cafeteria pseudo riot scene is. I would say it probably takes uh, a group of about 20 uh, riot gear clad COs to bust into the cafeteria. It probably takes them about five to seven seconds. And so, I mean, you know, if you kind of like work that one out logically, it means that not only were they all suited up, but they were standing in the hallway twiddling their thumbs and then they heard a ruckus going on. It's preposterous to say the least. It's preposterous because I've seen that exact same uh, scenario play out before in a Simpsons episode where, yeah, we're like Mr. Burns suddenly calls in these riot guards mm. to a dinner and they're in a second, they're all marching with shields and batons and beating people. And so, yeah, it was like watching a Simpsons gag in a live action yeah. film played completely straight. Yeah. And so um, kind of already touched on this, uh, the, the climax of the uh, riot scene is uh, this guy who wanted to kill Ben Affleck, he shivs his, Nick. His friend takes the shiv for him and dies in Ben Affleck's arms. Yeah, died in your arms tonight. So, very touching moment. And there's a little bit afterwards where we see Ben Affleck is sitting alone in his cell. It's all very sad, and he's looking at this like, kind of scrapbook of photos of Charlie's collage. Yeah. So as it's already been set up, he's supposed to be let out in three days. He is let out. The way the uh, prisoners uh, reuniting with their family scene Just played out. Just before this happens, though, let's talk about the CO that comes and visits Ben Affleck once fucking uh, Rudy has, has died. But Nick has died. Nick has died. It gets confusing. Uh, once Nick, his uh, former cellmate, has died. Uh, and comes up to him and just gives him, like, blows him some kisses through the bars yeah. uh, and tells him if you need some company, call him and things like that. In what I can only chalk up to 
Tarantino still sort of like resonating throughout the movie industry where everybody, every character has to have their own little quirk that comes into play at some point and then just like doesn't pay off at all, which happens a lot in reindeer games. There's a lot of characters uh, and it even happens before this in the food fight scene. There's just an old cranky man who hands out food who is called out for being an old cranky man during the food fight scene and then just looks genuinely shocked like no one told him he was going to have food thrown at him that day from the extras guild. It just it it just makes it a very sad scene. I better get my fifty dollars out of this. <laughs> Frankenheimer, you did it again. Yeah. <laughs> um anyways, then we move on to the prisoner release scene, which I think Michael was touching on is not super well organized. Yeah, it's like I'm not sure how prison release works, but as far as I know, you aren't put on a bus of prison with your loved ones now ex-convicts lovers on the bus with them like madly making out I'm not but sure hey dan do prisons typically release 60 felons a day is that like the turnover rate it's christmas baby <laughs> it's christmas compassion you better come back eh <laughs> yeah i mean this is set in michigan we're pretty close to the canadian border it's that kind of compassion uh but yeah so nick does get out uh not Nick. See, this is this is what happens when you have a character with his own legal name who goes by another character's <laughs> name the rest of the movie. Rudy. Yeah. Uh, Rudy gets out, uh, and then he runs into Ashley. Ashley being the woman that Nick was corresponding with. Played by Charlie's Theron. Mm-hmm. And there is a... You see, like, Ashley like, walks up to him, and... I guess there is a bit of good acting on Affleck's part here where you see this hesitation on his face. You realize he's wondering, what should I do? How should I approach this? And then just gives into, I don't know what his goal was in doing this, but he says, oh, yes, I'm Nick. Hi, <laughs> I'm the one you've been corresponding with all this time. It's there are a lot of inexplicable decisions in this movie, but like that's a big one. And this is back in this is another telltale sign that this was sort of pre 9-11 is like there was a time where an actor would read a role that had been written for him and see sort of the sort of like the the notes for the scene of like something is displayed, like Nick looks resigned and then determined where an actor would be like, OK, let me move my eyebrows around. Like the world has never seen before. And Ben Affleck falls prey to this in a way that like, I want to go back and watch more movies from this time period just to see, does everybody do this all the time? Like, it's like, oh, I feel disappointed. My eyebrows must now pierce my eyes. But now something exciting has happened that is off screen. My eyes must like leap from themselves in in a comical fashion. It's like the McElroy brothers are playing around with a character <laughs> in his face. Uh, but yeah, under the pretense of being Nick, Rudy strikes up like a proper relationship with Ashley and, you know, they go shopping and they get it on and everything's fun and dandy and until they get home back to the motel room one day and they're ambushed by Gary Sinise uh, and his crew of ruffians. Okay, but just before that, they do go back to... They have a little bit of a tough time starting off, but then they do end up going back to Charlie's Theron's uh, rented motel room. 
And what now I think would be considered an act of rape by misrepresenting yourself and engaging in sexual intercourse with someone? Uh, It's a time period piece. There was one funny detail that really jumped out at me um, when they go to sort of like there's this awkward diner scene uh, immediately after uh, the meeting at the jail. And... uh, Ben Affleck is sort of trying to explain why he was hesitant about saying, oh, it's me, blah, blah, blah. And so he's saying, like, I was worried that you'd, you know, like, look at my face or whatever and think that I'm not good looking, whatever, whatever. And then the writers had enough good sense to, when they were dealing with the same concerns with Charlize Theron, it was, uh, I was worried that you would see my clothes. That they're just like, all right, we, uh, we, we know this girl's a hottie. It's going to be insane if she's like, I thought that you would think I was ugly. And so it's funny that it almost became like a class issue. Um, because she also, she's established as working at the place where she takes them to shop. Mm. Um, and one of my favorite scenes in the movie is just, uh, and actually I think this happens more than once. Ben Affleck talks to himself in a mirror in a way no human being has ever done outside of Jack Donaghy and 30 Rock to psych himself up. I don't think people do that. Have you mm. ever done that? Have you ever talked to your visage? Not directly into a mirror. Like, sometimes if I am, like... I You're want more to- like Tina Fey, stop sweating, you bitch. <laughs> no, like, I... <laughs> when I need to confront somebody about something, like, where if I'm angry at something, I will do, like, a kind of practice rant when I'm by myself. Like, yeah, to like a taxi driver kind of thing. Like, except, like, I'm not unhinged when I'm doing it. But this is more to, like, one, like, put all my then thoughts... Why is there so much blood on your hands? <sighs> Listen. Uh, I don't want to get into it when we're recording. Snip, a snip, a yeah. snip. <laughs> all right. Uh, one, one thing we definitely need to talk about, the uh, segue from the uh, awkward kind of first meeting at the diner to the next thing. Um... Charlize Theron uh, delivers this this heartfelt line and she says, you're better than the pictures in my mind, Nick. You're real. And then a hard cut to like almost like a comical sex scene set to the tune of Let It Snow. (laughs) Yes. One of the few times in this movie where I thought that it was trying to let us know that it was in on the joke that it was trying to make. Interesting. Very much not the case because that that is a very, you know, non-traditional juxtaposition of uh, scene and music. And I thought, okay, this this movie knows what's happening, and maybe this was just like a little too ahead of its time uh, when it was originally filmed. But uh, no, everything else that comes after this proves me wrong on that count. Yeah, uh, I don't know what much more to say about that. I don't, know, I don't think that you were able to afford a butt double for Ben Affleck. He's got a very like it was him. Yeah, yeah. He's got a very flat sort of King of the Hill butt. Yeah, he definitely uh, is not as uh, swole as he is in uh, the town. Well, it's like when he, he was looking good. Well, it's like he hasn't he hasn't had to do that Batman training yet. Ah, uh, mm-hmm. good point. So, uh, yeah, they uh, do some uh, copulating. Everything is great. Go back to the motel. And there's a bunch of toughs in there. Just as Rudy, Ben Affleck, was thinking he could live life as Nick. Mm. He, he was getting used to the idea. Uh, bat to the stomach by 
Gary, no, Gary Sinise is sitting in the corner with a crossbow. Um, who who's the guy who uh, now plays Gordon in Gotham? Not Gordon, but uh, what's his name? Harvey Bullock. Uh, Donal Logue. <laughs> yeah, so Donal Logue, who was in uh, Terriers. And, yes. Uh, so Donal Logue, who he's one of those like the like, character actors. I always, even if I don't watch a lot of his work, a ton. Like, I still respect him because he always puts his all into whatever role he's given. I'm like, oh, I'm going to pull up Donald Logan on Wikipedia so we know about him. First of all, he was born in Ottawa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who are we talking about? Oh, so he's like, he was like kind of chubby, slubby member of the crew with like the So when team. Ben Affleck comes in and gets his, uh, his ass kicked by uh, Gary Sinise's band? Yes. Were, the were they all- yes. Crew. Uh, <laughs> crew. Uh, Donald Logue was uh, the one, I think, who initially hit him uh, with the bat and then holds Charlie's Theron very aggressively against the wall. He's the guy through, throughout the movie keeps the eye on Nick slash Rudy. The white the guy. The white guy who's drinking the rum? Yes. Right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's the, born in Ottawa? Yeah, he was born in Ottawa. Uh, other fun fact about him. Uh, no one knows what year he was born in. So the Wikipedia <laughs> page is like born February 27th. 1965 or 1966 sources vary. 27th? Yeah, February 27th. That's my birthday. Okay, so you share a <laughs> yeah, you share a birthday with an Ottawa-born actor who does not have an established year of birth. <laughs> I mean, if you don't know his year of birth, I think that we can geographically pinpoint the location to Vanier or the approximate area. <laughs> <laughs> the four people yeah. from Ottawa. Anyway, so this gang is uh, led by Gary Sinise. Uh, it's a very stacked gang of actors. Yeah, actually, I will say this movie has a solid cast yeah. of like character actors. So you've got Gary Sinise, who I've enjoyed in pretty much everything I've seen him in. Yeah. You have uh, former convict turned love of everybody, Danny Trejo. You have Clarence Williams III, who was in the Mod Squad. And you have Donal Logue. Uh, so what else is the black guy in? He looks so familiar. You mean Clarence Williams the third? He has a name. Uh, <laughs> so whoa, shots <laughs> fired. We are going to look that up. Start now. recording after ten, and Dan gets testy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one funny detail about uh, Danny Trejo. Did you notice that every scene he was inside, uh, he was wearing a sleeveless vest? I did not notice. It's that. like whether it's the dead of winter, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, if, if, hey, if Dreo's in the movie. No fucking sleep I mean, for this. Another. Hey, it's 1999, pals. <laughs> it's, that's just how it was. And yes, I know it came out in 2000, but it had to be filmed in 99. He had the only line that I legitimately laughed at in this movie, which was about how 50% of all commerce done in the United States is done in the month of December. I, a country that was concentrated on growth would institute a second Christmas to even out and expand spending. <laughs> and like, Treo, what? You started off so high. What happened? Oh, well, arguably, he kept at that level. See, I missed that because of the weird sound dynamics on the movie. <laughs> and I watched this in bed with my laptop right next to my head. I sat there with uh, Cody. I, I watched it on Cody. And so I would push it, push the right thumbstick up when it seemed like a quiet moment. And then obviously you miss the, the exciting moment. So then you pull it down immediately and like it drips down 30 decibels all of a sudden. It's, yeah. it's too, too much. Yes. I got to say, I was uh, impressed that 
uh, they were able to restrain themselves for uh, 30 minutes before uh, Gary Sinise uh, delivers the line, don't play no rain gear games with me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, as if the movie was announcing, we don't give a shit. <laughs> and like, I mean, to be fair to the writer on this movie, the famous song, Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer, doesn't really establish what reindeer games are. I mean, <laughs> these young reindeers could have been screwing each other over in elaborate con and robbery jobs. Fair point. Yeah. Uh, so Gary Sinise is uh, Charlie Theron's brother, uh, and he used her, like, and she admits this as bit of a pawn, to lure Rudy under the believing that he is Nick. This is how it's kind of confusing to lay out. We are going to need a roadmap for this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Basically, uh, Gary Sinise is looking to get uh, Nick for a job because Nick prior to his time in prison worked at this casino out in the boonies in Michigan. Uh, and Gary Sinise believes like, Oh, there's a ton of money waiting here with Nick having for me work there. He knows the layout of the place. He can get us in. He can help us rob the place. And this is the major issue in the film for me uh, is, and maybe this is just only present in the director's cut because I did watch, I think you guys did as I watched well, the director's a cut. two hour cut of this film, which did not need to be two hours. This is an hour and a half movie. <laughs> a taut, taut 88er. But this starts the beginning of, Will they or won't they discover that Ben Affleck is not the character he says he is? Because they seem to land on different conclusions all the time throughout this film. It goes back and forth. It goes back and forth in a way that if I was a rational human being as Gary Sinise, which obviously is impossible, the two are mutually exclusive, but you would not act the way that you do around this, which makes the ending more implausible, but also... It just, it, 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 I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I had trouble in the middle third of this movie understanding where everybody was standing because did they believe that Ben Affleck was his dead roommate? Yes. Well, I mean, like, I'm not saying, yes, they believed him. I mean that, yes, it is really confusing and they go. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, your confusing is, uh, confusing, it, it, it's completely justified because even Ben Affleck's, uh, like, performance in terms of selling the lie changes from time to time and uh there's a scene uh kind of early on when they're first discussing the casino heist and he really sells the fact that oh this map that you have is outdated and mm -hmm. like he nails it but then later on in the film he's trying to do the same thing and he's trying to map out the heist and he sounds like a bumbling idiot and it's bizarre that his performance of trying to deceive them, the quality of the deception varies. But even more than that, like there's he says that, the, you know, it's been remodeled since I went away. Then um, it's discovered by one of the henchmen. Oh, yeah. Clarence Williams. Yes. That's a good uh, name. Clarence Williams, the third discovers that it hasn't been remodeled. And so that and he knows that he's that Ben Affleck is fake, but it doesn't really play into anything until the end. It's like there are several opportunities in this movie where they could have just shot Ben Affleck in the back of the head and gone about their heist. And like they 
the characters just seem very dumb and very gullible for people who are supposed to be hardened criminals. Like, way too willing to take this guy at his word, especially after, like, he admitted to, like, basically taking a dead man's identity and then suddenly going back on the... Which happens in the very beginning of the movie, which I guess is where we're still at. <laughs> I know it gets it's kind of confusing to uh track the uh track the plot of this movie because there is a lot of waffling and like I was like, is like do they believe Nick? Do they not believe him? Is Nick about to be taken out to the woods and be shot in the back in the head? Like and I'm saying Nick, even though this character's name is Rudy, it is a very confusing <laughs> movie. And Ben Affleck. So Ben Affleck uh after being assaulted by Garrison Neeson's band um is taken in Garrison Neeson's uh roving truck headquarters yep which we don't really get to explore even though it seemed like they'd set up that interior to be much more used than it was like there was like a bed there's some expansive it looked like there might have been like a toilet area i will say that seems like a pretty solid mobile headquarters Mm-hmm. Or they can travel around the country and commit crimes, and Donald Logue can drink rum in the back. <laughs> As Donald Logue is wont to do. Uh, I really miss Terrier, so that was a good show. Um, uh, but yeah, they do end up casing this casino, which is out in the middle of nowhere, and it's run by a former Las Vegas businessman played by Dennis Farina. Uh, <laughs> He's, then, it's not run by him. It's run by one of the heads of the tribe. Yeah, like the local like indigenous uh, tribe. And this he's a this guy's a bit of a jerk, I will say. Like he says some pretty shitty stuff while talking to these local like tribal leaders, but he's also kind of a sad sack in a big in a lot of ways. Like he's this failed Las Vegas businessman. He doesn't get any respect from anybody. His casino's kind of tanking. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's another very Tarantino conceit. Like this character has this huge backstory of just wanting to get back, like just getting a nut sort of cachet to get back to uh, Las Vegas is all he wants to do throughout no, the. He doesn't want to go to Las Vegas. I'm not going back to Vegas. I'm not going back to Vegas. Oh, I thought he wanted to build up enough to get back to Las Vegas. I mean, we're talking about a movie that doesn't have a lot of consistent characterization, so I can forgive you for being confused. But also, yeah, because it had no effect on the plot. So it, it in that first uh, Dennis Freeney scene, uh, not really a whole lot of uh, narrative importance. They're kind of implying that the casino isn't as successful as other Indian casinos in the area. And uh, in his defense, Dennis Freeman busts out what might be the best line in the entire film. And uh, he passionately yells, you show me another buffet that offers both Coke and Pepsi. Don't even bother looking. It doesn't exist. <laughs> that was pretty great. Another, Which is too real. Though. Another really good touch is that uh, the heavy thrum of background noise and people chatting in the casino isn't actually the sounds of a oh, lot of people genius. chatting. Genius. It's like some <laughs> recordings he has on tape and he has to switch them out on occasion. <laughs> and like, that's just, I think in a much, if this movie had been given another, I think this movie could have been really, really, really good or solid. If it had been given another draft or two. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's just one of those little touches. Like I will say like, even though there's, kind of plot threads left dangling with him. Like, I don't want to go back to Vegas. I think they sell this dude's character pretty well where they could set him up as your standard corrupt businessman. Instead, he plays this jackass who's kind of sad to watch. And 
So Rudy, as Nick, puts on a shitty cowboy disguise and he goes inside to case the place while being tailed by Clarence Williams to make sure that he doesn't run away. They're constantly concerned about Nick slash Rudy running away to the point where they keep him literally chained to a bed at night. But they do it in so much as they they're like sort of the reason why they do that seems to be that they're not sure if he is or isn't what he says. It's it's a very complex, underdeveloped sort of plot line there. But yes, he uh, Ben Affleck goes in dressed as a cowboy because cowboys and Indians, I guess, would be a funny. Yep, just a cowboy in just a cowboy in rural Michigan. Uh, I don't know, maybe they have cowboys there. I've only been to Michigan just the once. So basically, Rudy as Nick plays off like he's getting information from Dennis Farina, and then he does this kind of admittedly funny fake out thing where he goes into a washroom and pawns his costume off some poor unsuspecting guy played by a pre-fame Ashton Kutcher. And then there's like another pointless chase sequence of will will Rudy get away? No, he doesn't. They catch him. And but it's so long. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that belabors the point. And yeah, maybe adding a half hour to the, your director's cut is <laughs> going to kind of at this point, it felt like there was a lot of this because before I watched this, I watched the trailer for it. And most of the trailer is all the extraneous stuff that you could just cut from the movie. But it looks good. Like people being trapped under ice looks good in a trailer. People unsure of who this character is looks good in a trailer. You know, someone with a bullet hole or someone with a gun being fired it looks good in a trailer, but probably isn't super necessary in the end of this cut, except for the last 30 minutes of this movie, which is great. But, I mean, there's not a lot to say about how the middle of this film goes. It's a lot of... I would completely agree with that. So, there is one scene in this movie where he actually does successfully escape. Like, he manages to unscrew the frame of his bed and slip out of his, like, foot chain. Uh, Basically, he wants to grab a gun from this one car that has a keep Michigan gun-filled bumper sticker or something like that. One of the best jokes in the film. Yeah. Um, anyways, he does that, and he successfully grabs a gun, even though he also could have successfully just escaped in this scene. That's true. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, hey, Rudy, buddy, none of these people know where you live, pal. You can just kind of run back to your hometown. And they all think you're Nick. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, mm, yeah, yeah. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Jesus Anyways, Christ. Uh, while creeping around, uh, he peeks into the motel pool and well, he sees. Well, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. No. We got to talk about the lake scene. Oh, we did kind of brush over that while you're. Oh, we got to dig okay. deep. You want to okay, go deep go on the lake? The, okay, oh, yeah. Let's, let's take a deep dive okay. into the frozen yeah. lake. So Ben Affleck tries to escape from the casino as he's mapping it out for the group. Yeah. Uh, he's given Ashton Kutcher his disguise, and he escapes out the back. And they chase him for a while with AK-47s. Or not ak 40 Does one guy have an AK-47 and Garrison a shotgun? has like a semi-automatic hunting rifle. And that scene really bugged me. Because... Like the like he's like the fifty yards away from him, and these guys are supposed to be gun runners, which you can't help but assume they kind of know how to use a gun. That was yeah one of the only interesting sort of wrinkles of this movie is Ben Affleck is able to sell some sort of credibility by being the only person who has cased a joint because everyone yeah. sheepishly admits that mm, they've never actually stolen anything yeah. But yeah, so the the, the Garrison East 
is shooting at him and like there's no way he wouldn't have hit him and like i guess like like when you watch the entire film it makes sense why he didn't actually shoot him but like there's no way he would have missed you know especially because later on in that scene uh there's this like ice fisherman who kind of confronts them and then he runs back to his shack and Garrison he like puts two rounds into it that are like uh you know a foot and a half apart from like a hundred yards away and so, I mean, if he's that good of a shot, he obviously would have been able to shoot him. Mm-hmm. So I found that seems kind of weird. But I will say the scene when he like executes the ice fisherman, that was pretty nasty. Like, I kind of like that scene where the guy's lying on the ground. He's like, I have a wife and a family. And rather than just blow him away, he shoots the ice out from him. So this guy who's already been shot drowns that, that some of the, like the nastier scenes in this film were like kind of impressive. Like there's that scene. And then right after this, they take him back and Ben Affleck does the worst. I have hypothermia uh, <laughs> performance ever. And then uh, so Gary Sinise is trying to get information out of him. And like, I got to say, there's so there's a scene where Gary Sinise is throwing darts into him. And like, it was pretty nasty. Like, the, the, I, I really like that. Yeah, like, so it, that was one of the scenes that was cut from the theatrical release. Ah, yeah, oh, no way. Yeah. That was pretty gross. Like, well, like at least they uh, definitely pared it down from what I understand. Really? Yeah. It was like, oh, that actually kind of added to the movie because it established like how hardcore Gary Sinise's character is. And it inspires a moment of sympathy for the otherwise fairly unsympathetic Rudy. Yeah. He's just, again, like it comes back to the fact that Rudy trying to turn, turn his life around gets out of jail and immediately pretends to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, anyways. And that whole scene where Gary Sinise says, oh, I haven't been trying to miss, and then starts hitting Ben Affleck. That is a real wrinkle to that character that, like, stuck with me. Like, that informed the character much more than anything that came before or mm-hmm. after, for the most part, which is just Gary Sinise with long hair is sinister. One thing that was funny uh, about... This, I guess the setting of that scene is that you have this crew of thugs, these hardened criminals or whatever, and that their kind of lair or their clubhouse is the games room of a motel. <laughs> and there's, there's pinball machines. There's one scene where a little kid walks in to play pinball. And then one of like the heavies like grabs the kid and he's like, get the fuck out of here. And it's like, you know, it's like the, 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 the master villain is, you know, conducting his symphony of evil I mean, while like, there's like pinball games. They don't him. own the hotel. Like at some point they're shown paying a bill. At what point does the manager <laughs> say, hey, stop planning criminal conspiracies in our fucking games room. <laughs> Children play here. So actually that that so that the the bill scene, there's. Is fucking hilarious. Uh, so they've kept, couldn't have been shown in the original theatrical <laughs> they, release. They, so they've kept Ben Affleck a prisoner in this motel, and it turns out that while he was chained to the bed, he ordered a bunch of pay per view that they have to pay for, and so they start kicking his ass in the parking lot. And at one point, uh, Danny Trejo, who's again this, this hardened criminal, he's covered in tats and he's killing people, uh, and he's just like, "That was on my credit card." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. During his imprisonment, though, uh, Rudy does have a brief little respite where he actually manages to escape from his bonds, like in hopes of finding a gun to procure for the heist to keep his own ass safe when it goes down. Uh, while he's creeping around, he goes into the motel's pool room and sees 
uh, Charlie Theron and uh, Gary Sinise, purportedly brother and sister, playing around and screwing in the pool. And this was something, this whole, the whole setup to this, uh, Ben Affleck captive in his room, trying to find a way out and then trying to find a way back in. Mm -hmm. Probably the best setup in this movie and the most sort of, uh, the most promise of tension in it. Like there's, there's a lot in here that I really, really like, and it's done fairly well again, except for all the Dutch angles and except for the fact that Rudy, bud, this is your one chance to escape. Like they had no idea you were gone. Did he, was the reason why he didn't go though. Now that I'm thinking about it because he wanted to bring the lady with him. Because he wanted to bring Charlie's Theron. But like, but at this point, he's already found out that they're not actually brother and sister. Or like they've got some weird Lannister thing going on. But I'm saying like he comes out of the building uh, to try and find a gun. He finds a knife uh, from the Michigan Keep Michigan Proud Important. Uh, group that is also staying at the same motel. Escapes, comes back in, then finds out. He's got no viable way out of the building because the the guys are coming in from mm. other ends and, and he's coming in. So he has to get back up to his uh, room. I think that's I'm not trying to <laughs> apologize for the internal logic, but I think they might have actually covered their bases in this situation. No apology could be too great, Riley. <laughs> All right. You win this one, Frankenheimer from beyond the grave. <laughs> you know, he's laughing at us. Um, so yeah, where do we go from here? I think they, they go to the heist at this point. Yeah. It's pretty much what it is, right? Despite the last third of the movie is that heist. Like I was looking at the timestamp. Yeah. Yeah, Like despite all logic, they're just like, regardless of the fact, uh, even the dumbest person could piece together that like, this guy's not who he says he was. And he's not the person who's going to provide us with the intel that we need, we might as well take him along anyways. And there's a little bit of an apology to that at the end, but it still just does not yeah. make up for yeah. how the rest of this film goes. Yeah. And oh my God, when it kicks into high gear, God bless yeah. Frankensteiner. Just one little bit before it kicks into high gear. There is a brief moment on in the back of the truck where we think that, uh, Rudy's got his hands on a gun and he's going to off himself, but it's actually a plastic toy gun that he's filled with rum. And I think that was a really nice visual gag that has payoff later on in the climax. Oh my God, the payoff of it. So yeah, let's get to the heist. So uh, as part of their plan, they've all disguised themselves as Santas. They've got like a rack of suits, Santa Claus suits. Uh, So they go into the casino one at a time and Rudy stages a fight with an older gentleman at the craps table or whatever. In, Blackjack. In just, yes, Blackjack. this Blackjack scene is one of the worst uses of either ADR or just shotgun mics ever committed to film because there are four people talking at every moment in this scene. There are two distinct conversations going on and there is a dealer trying to deal out cars and there is no editing to make it suggest as if something happens in linear order. It's... It happens like real life, but it just fills your speakers as like four people all talking at once. One thing I will say is uh, like I'm not a seasoned gambler or anything, but I know a little bit about Blackjack and that the setup for Ben Affleck freaking out was actually super accurate. 
and that like I've seen it happen where there's this sort of there's an understanding when you're playing blackjack where if a person is showing uh certain cards that you don't take their card because like that that's your card to get 21 and if you beat the dealer everyone wins and like I, I that there was it was like one of the few instances in the film where uh there actually was pretty impressive attention to detail and that someone actually did research what would actually set a gambler off. Well, I just learned something about gambling. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's actually kind of a sweet moment in which he tackles this old man to the floor and is then like whispering to the guy, just keep your head down, keep yeah. your head down. And that's when the shooting starts and uh, the rest of the crew takes out the armed guards there, uh, with the exception of Donal Logue, who is like blown away by a shotgun or whatever. Uh, and yet the crew... And there's like two more security guards appear and then Charlize Theron just drives through the front doors in the car and runs these two guys over. That was pretty great. And I love the uh, the, the super like explicit uh, this is the femme fatale revealing herself moment because all of a sudden, her makeup is super heavy, and she yeah. looks like a demon. Like she looks like she's be like the singer of like an Italian goth band or something. And it's just like the, 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 this 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 corny uh, small town girl who we're not really sure what her deal is. She's evil, and <laughs> she comes out of the car and she tells Ben Affleck, "Yo, you know the two of us will never work out." It's, you know, that sort of stuff's not written in the stars in a way that only works because the audience already knows that she's bad. She's no longer trying to play that character anymore. And that I, it spoiled a little bit for me. Uh, sort of that character was pretty complex. It, it gets better in a few minutes, but after like it, it seemed like something that could have, she could have played us. Oh, come on, Nick. Come on, Ben Affleck. Let's, let's go on a little bit more. But they just sort of played as the audience already knows this. So let's just do it as the to keep things straight in the audience's mind. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point, actually. Like when she kind of reveals herself as the kind of evil femme fatale, like. There's nothing before that where Ben Affleck kind of shows his cards and that he knows that she's bad, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's very strange that she drops the charade, even though she didn't have to. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, throughout this, throughout the whole movie, one of the things that we as the audience are meant to believe uh, is something of Ben Affleck's own creating is the powwow safe. Yes. He keeps mentioning the powwow safe where the manager of the casino is siphoning off millions of dollars into his own private safe that is on location in the casino. Gary Sinise becomes obsessed with this idea of the powwow safe. Powwow safe. Everyone keeps saying powwow safe throughout the movie. Gary Sinise will not leave the scene of, like, they've made millions, tens of millions of dollars in their robbery already. Gary Sinise wants to know where the powwow safe is. So what do they do? They viciously beat Dennis Farina and, and like, force him to, like, reveal location of the safe. Though, at that point, he reveals, like, I don't know this Nick dude. This isn't any Nick that worked for me. And but they're still able to convince him enough that to point out the location of the safe and it's behind the liquor cabinet. So they open it up and there's, oh, there's a safe behind there. But just as a precaution, they have Dennis Farina 
open up the safe. Because he knows the combination. Yeah, and he just whips around because inside the shape are a pair of submachine guns. And at that point, I was lying in bed and watched this movie, and I just clapped. I'm like, yes! Because I got to see Dennis Frina go buck wild with a pair of submachine guns. And, like, guns down Danny Trejo in a flat second. (laughs) Here's the big question. Like, the way that... uh, they film that scene and uh, the Ben Affleck sort of like uh, reactions to various things. Like I kind of read it as he guessed that there would be a safe behind the liquor cabinet. Yeah. So like, are, like are we to assume that he made up the, like how did you know about the powwow thing? I imagine that Nick had to have mentioned something like that in prison. I find that really confusing because it's like like there's so many references in the film to Gary Sinise reading every single letter. So everything that Charlie Theron knows, oh, yeah. he would know. And like the the whole powwow say thing, like uh, that was a little confusing. Well, Nick says Ben Affleck says that it, you know I did spend six months with the guy. You know, we talked every day. That's sort of the reasoning behind it. Is Are we supposed to believe that he knew exactly what was in the powwow safe? I thought that was sort of like the big drop of that moment. I think that's what we're supposed to believe. But aside from it actually happening, there isn't really anything else in the film to uh, make the audience confident about his knowledge. Here we go. Irregardless, not a word, but appropriate in this case, we get to see Dennis Farina jump out of his top story window where he overlooks the casino onto the top of some gambling machines with two some machine guns strapped to him as he continues to try and shoot down people. And that was worth the price of admission alone. Worth remembering this scene, Dennis Farina for years was a Chicago burglary cop. <laughs> it's like he was a cop before all this. And I still like to think that he had the most fun in his entire professional career, just shooting a bunch of blanks out of these twin machine guns. And I, I, I praise him for that. God rest you, uh, Dennis Farina. Uh, but yeah, but upstairs, Clarence Williams III has Ben Affleck cornered and like Ben Affleck turns a gun on him. But oh no, it's the rum gun. It's useless in a fight. And so just taking this time, going to shoot Ben Affleck. Clarence Williams like starts lighting up a cigarette, which is really dumb when you think about what Benny's holding his hand, a gun full of flammable liquid, squirts it at Clarence just as he's lighting a cigarette and just sets this man on fire. And it's great fucking kill. It's an amazing kill. Yes. That scene was hilarious, but like, I feel like it was another one of many, uh, like willing suspension of disbelief scenes in the film that like, uh, unless Ben Affleck has some sort of nerve problem in his hand, there's no fucking way he wouldn't have known it's a squirt gun. Like uh, a, a Beretta nine millimeter weighs a little under a kilogram unloaded. A squirt gun weighs nothing like he would pick it up. He would immediately know this is not a gun that shoots bullets. And so because he's holding it up and instead of, you know, threatening him to psych the other guy out and then getting the real gun, he thinks it's a real gun. And then all of a sudden rum starts dripping out of it. 
There's I'm, no way he wouldn't have known. I don't think we ever established that the gun is plastic, so I'm just going to go assume that for some reason <laughs> someone made a squirt gun out of solid metal parts. <laughs> that is what I'm going with to support this badass kill scene. But, Dan, you are right. At this point in the film, I just started laughing the rest of the way. There is nothing this film could do to redeem itself after they set Clarence Thomas on fire. Not Clarence Thomas, <laughs> Clarence Thomas is... He was trying to put his pube on Ben Affleck's Coke can, and he set him on fire. It was great. I mean, from from that scene on, and probably 50 minutes before it, that's when I was just like, I'm fucking on board. Like, there there was nothing that could have happened that would make me turn off this film, because I was like, I am invested as shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think... Even before the third act part, like when I was just seeing kind of the twists and turns develop, I'm like, okay, okay, I want to see how this plays out. Because you get the sense that, okay, I don't know where this is going, but I don't think they do either. And that is the greatest feeling in the world. Oh, it's the exact same feeling I had watching the new season of Twin Peaks. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so Dennis Farina, as badass as he is in his final scene, he is tagged by several bullets and he expires from his wounds. Uh, and Rudy goes to flee, but he is cornered by both Gary Sinise and Charlie Theron. I should really stick to either calling them by their character names or by their actor names. Yeah. So Ben Affleck is cornered and caught by uh, Gary Sinise and Charlie Theron. Uh, and so they take him to a cliff's edge. And the plan they have is we're going to make it seem that none of the Santas got out alive. We're going to strap you into this car, the douse in gasoline, set it on fire, and then just launch you over the edge of the cliff. And it was and the cops will assume, oh, he was driving away at the cash and spun out and died. They really spell it out for the viewer as Charlie's Theron says, five Santas went into this place. Five Santas have to die coming out. It's math. It makes sense. Five in, five out. Do you not understand how we're trying to finish this movie, you listless viewer? And it's five in, five people went in. As as far as we know, five people went into the building. We don't know about Charlie's Theron. Five people come out, five people die. Do you get that, Ben? Do you get that, Ben Affleck? This is how the end of the movie has to happen. So what was really confusing is, as with every piece of media I consume these days. I immediately went to the TV tropes page afterwards <laughs> and it said six Santas go in. So I was super confused and I was going over the back half of the movie. I'm like, wait, was there a sixth crew member I kept <laughs> overlooking? <laughs> uh, but then uh, while was it, they're basically they're mocking or interrogating Ben Affleck. And that's when Charlie's Theron lip let slip. That in prison, Nick was shivved. Now, ben, in, ben Affleck never let loose that information. That detail was never revealed to her. And so suddenly both he and Gary Sinise are confused about how she would have known that. And at that point, she just kind of drops this pretense of being Ashley and then just shoots Gary Sinise dead because she's not Ashley. She's Nick's girlfriend from before he went in the joint she is ben affleck's prisoner roommate who was killed mm-hmm. girlfriend 
Yes. And then who's that stepping out from behind the truck? Why, it's Nick. He's still alive. He faked his death in prison as part of an agreement with uh, the big vicious prisoner. And this whole thing has been a long con where he gets other people to rob his old workplace while he gets out scratch free. You say it's the long con, but it's literally the longest con in the world. And he himself is a con. (laughs) Uh, And so Nick is played by James Frain, who's an English actor who often plays American characters. Uh, And this is not the first time where James Frain has turned out to be the surprise villain because he was like the actual big bad of season true of true detective as well, even though he's like, he turns out to be this corrupt cop who is like seemingly ordinary for the first half of the series. So it's like, it's a weird kind of thing at James Frain, and I respect is him. Is that, that him? Yes. Jeepers. I and definitely didn't notice that at all. Yeah. Most people don't remember Season True, True Detective. Um, <laughs> season True. Season True. Uh, <laughs> it gets confusing. Let's, to- let's unpack the lies that have been told. So many lies. So Ben Affleck thought that he was dating. Charlie's Theron, his deceased uh, cellmate's pen pal. pen pal. Then she turned out to be secretly the girlfriend of Gary, Sin- Gary Sinise. And then turned out to be secretly, secretly the girlfriend of Ben Affleck's deceased cellmate. Cellmate. Who actually wasn't deceased. Who actually wasn't deceased. And had planned this all on his own, essentially. And it really gave me in great insight. The way this, the end of this movie plays out gave me great insight uh, into how not to end a movie, which was basically anytime you have loose ends at the end of a movie, just write in someone who was there before the movie started as having done that thing. And then you just end the movie. Like... Anytime it was just like, oh, but why would Charlie say, well, because she was with Nick, uh, your old roommate who was not actually dead. But why was this other thing? Because they're dumb gun runners. They shouldn't have figured it out, but they almost did. But it was it was so bad. I will have to admit, I do like that they lampshade the fact that like, yeah, this plan totally could have failed and easily could have failed. But hey, I guess it turned out well for us in the end. They... The idea of, I am in jail, I have a girlfriend on the outside, I'm going to convince the girlfriend on the outside to start uh, telling gunrunners that I have a boyfriend on the inside who could help out with uh, a casino that he worked at two years before that his cellmate also has cursory knowledge of who will then be released from prison and I can seduce on behalf of you, the gun runners. Wow. Faulty Towers got hardcore. (laughs) (laughs) But I will still be with you who have faked your death in prison, but you haven't actually faked your death in prison. You have set up your own death so that it only looks like it's a fake death to other people. And then five people will die, five people, five people enter, five people have to die. It's like the world's worst WWE cage match. Talking about like John Cena came into the ring dressed <laughs> as Santa Claus. I would get to so get pay-per-view from earlier. I would pay for the pay-per-view of that. I would watch just for mankind to do something that his body should not allow him to do anymore. <laughs> uh 
But yeah, continuing the earlier plan, Charlie Theron and James Frain, Nick, strap Ben Affleck into the car and they prepare to set him to his fiery, wintry doom. In the worst setup that this movie has done thus far. It's like, yeah, let's store this car in the back of this truck trailer and we're just going to... I'm going to stand behind this car and push it out (laughs) while you stand in front of it and, like... Pour gasoline on it. I guess they weren't ex- expecting Ben Affleck to have that switchblade familiar secreted in his sleeve because he manages to saw through his bonds, hot- hotwire the car because he was a car thief. And in case you forgot that he was a car thief, he says, oh, you made one mistake. You put a car thief behind the wheel of a car. Yeah. And so he manages to put the car in reverse, backs into Nick in really painful move. Like, you could hear the crunch and then it just, looked like signs. Oh, yes. He was pinned. Swing away, Nick. <laughs> I was just about to say swing away. Uh, and then like puts it into, puts it into drive, like drives right to Charlie's Theron, bails out of the car and she goes over the cliff on fire on the front of this car and then blows up with it as it hits the ground. And then. Perfect. Yeah. I, I was so. Uh, heartbroken that we didn't get uh, like a slow-mo Hans Gruber-esque shot (laughs) from the hood of the car of Charlize Theron like plummeting down to her death because everything that came before was like so over the top and so wacky that I was like this is this is what I need to like really be satisfied with this film but wait Michael surely a film of this size with uh, the likes of Ben Affleck, Charlize Theron, Gary Sinise will be able to afford to be able to send a full-size tractor trailer off the side of a cliff. No, they have to do some weird Frank Zappa stop-motion-esque photography to get this uh, truck and its trailer to fall off the edge of a cliff. I hadn't seen something like that, actually, since I think Ghost Ghost Rider. (laughs) Ooh. Ooh, it did not look great. Yeah. So not only do you get one car falling over a cliff and exploding, you get two. Let's do it again. <laughs> it's like I, I, I kind of feel like, like from a uh, a narrative perspective, the that end sequence and all the like ridiculous expository craziness, like it's almost like a like a like a tension release kind of thing. And that, like, you're enduring uh, all this ham-fisted plotting and, like, how can they possibly believe this guy and there's all this wacky stuff happening that, like, these wacky twists, it almost feels good. That, like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm finally getting something kind of solid and that, as preposterous as it seems, like, all these loose ends are being tied up regardless of how insane it may be. This actually reminded me a little bit of Killing Salazar, wherein there's a lot of, back when we could actually talk about um, Seagal, uh, there's a lot of twists in that movie that you're supposed to sort of keep track of every character's sort of, it's supposed to be like setting up a chessboard and then slowly moving the pieces around. And this did that a lot more successfully, but still at the end it was just like, let's get to the good stuff. And in this case, it it actually worked out pretty well because we're left with in something that you could not do in 2017, 
uh, a white man having stolen millions of dollars from Native American people and redistributing that wealth to other white people in his hometown. It was a beautiful sign of the times. <laughs> My goodness, the end of this movie is you've just don't you literally remade America again. And he gets he finally gets home to his family and sits down for Christmas and has some turkey with them. Still wearing that but wait, Dan, is anyone his family phased by the fact that their son or brother-in-law or uncle showed up to family dinner? First of all, two days out from uh, prison. And second of all, look like he just got exploded. Yes. And he's wearing this like <laughs> he's wearing this ragged Santa suit. He's clearly got dirt and grime all over his face. Like, like what loving family is like, hey, really happy to see you again. Hop in the shower. Got some jeans for you if you want. And then the end voiceover again of Ben Affleck in a shower recording this because he was just like, I want nothing to do with this movie is like, I never really considered Christmas to be that special of a holiday. But guess what? I do now. Hmm. It's like because you were complicit of killing of six people. That's why you'll remember this. You will have PTSD for the rest of your life. You just stole millions of dollars of money to people who probably really. Uh, anyways, I think our time with Reindeer Games is coming to a close. And guys, what uh, is there things that you could do to improve this movie? What would you do with this movie if it, if it was in your hands? Or is there something that you would do? Would you recommend this to people? I say if you're just having like a night in with a couple of friends and you're drinking a bit and it's close to Christmas, hey, maybe pop this in. Like it's something smart, but you can have gab over this movie and then like have your attention drawn to the screen for the pretty solid final act of it. Uh, decent popcorn movie. Uh, I'd say improvements. Like I just find that the main character isn't totally sympathetic. Like mm. it could be because like the premise of this movie is a guy who gets like forced into this criminal conspiracy against his will. And if it had been simply a case of mistaken identity, that would have been great. But it's an identity that he knowingly and willingly adopted in a way that was like really like dishonest. And we discussed earlier, like kind of rapey, but though the plot twist kind of renders that point moot because Charlie's Theron was in on that whole thing as well. Like reverse rapey. No, no, in the sense that her character was like aware that he was faking his identity. Yeah. But uh yeah, so he wasn't totally sympathetic. It gets confusing at some point with just all of like the layers of plot twists piling up on each other. Uh but like I had fun with it. I had way more fun with this than I expected to. Way more fucking fun than I did with Army of One. Yeah. It's like this watching this wasn't like having isn't like listening to nails being raked across a chalkboard. So yeah, it's like if you, if you're drunk and it's Christmas, watch reindeer games. Mike, how about you? I definitely wouldn't recommend it. Um, there's a lot of like, I guess surprising elements in it. Like uh, Dan kind of touched on this a little bit, but like, um, you could kind of uh, extrapolate almost sort of like a morality tale about the danger of, to put it in a really crass way, thinking with your dick. 
and that like that's essentially what got him into trouble like he didn't uh you know go over and talk to Charlize Theron because uh he was worried about her being heartbroken or something like he just wanted to hook up and they kind of set that up earlier in the film where he's like oh I should probably like vet her and I'll keep her for like a day or maybe a night wow 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 and so there's that um I was very very impressed that like a film that is just like meandering for 90 minutes somehow had a really strong, really engaging last 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And that like, I mean, you know, it, it's tough to do, especially like, you know, like action films have, you know, become a lot more sophisticated in the 21st century. And like, it's really difficult to have a sustained action scene like that. And, you know, is it perfect? No. But like, uh, like I was completely engaged the whole time, even though everything that preceded the kind of epic action scene, like I couldn't have been less interested in. So like in terms of like bad films with a strong finish, like, I mean, it's pretty unique, especially considering the strong finishes 30 fucking minutes long like that's a a big chunk to be good like that's more good than most you know above average films have Mm -hmm. so like there's a lot of junk in this film but like there's a surprising and like i like i'm not using that phrase in like an insincere way like i mean i was sincerely surprised at how like excited i was at the ending so i mean you don't need to see it but uh it's pretty unique. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I was very worried at the very beginning when it was voiceover and sort of a camera over five uh, dead Santas, and you're like, okay, this is the ending of the begin. This is the ending at the beginning. This is sort of what we know we're going up to and going up to and going up to. And so I thought that initially, I thought that robbed a lot of the movie of its sort of. Uh, reveals and I was I was willing to judge it at about the hour 35 mark and then that's when I was like no we know what you're expecting let's turn it turn it turn it turn it that was a lot of fun I still wish they took out that beginning scene I think it was sort of inconsequential of or not inconsequential but it ruins sort of you you kind of know what's going to happen but you you don't need to know that to enjoy the film uh other than that I think Again, I think both of you guys sort of touched on this. If you change it up so that uh, Ben Affleck's character assumes the identity of his dead roommate uh, or cellmate because there's something beneficial to that, and then that gets him caught up into something, as opposed to him knowingly sort of, you know, sleeping with women and being that guy while knowing that he's not that guy would be probably to the movie's betterment. Uh, I look forward to the 2020 remake when it gets incorporated into the MCU universe. Um, Oh no, he's Batman now. He won't be Batman for long. John Hamm's going to be Batman. Anyways. uh, Yeah. It's a better Christmas movie than Die Hard, but it's not a better movie than Die Hard. 
Interesting point. Ed, uh, when you started saying that sentence, I was about to be like, hold on. But then <laughs> when you got to the end, I was like, all right. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm fine with that. Yeah. I'll stand by that. All right. Uh, anyways, guys, this has been Fox to Galls. Thank you so much mm-hmm. for checking it out. We can do a better See outro. You next time. <laughs> 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 <laughs>